0: Good morning, church. Uh, I'm so glad to be with you. Um, I miss you. I miss seeing your faces not via screen. I miss being able to give you a hug and welcome you into the cafeteria at Minor Elementary. Uh, I miss the random conversations that we would have, random connections that we would make. Uh, We are so glad to be able to offer this uh, streaming service live in this time of COVID-19 and social distancing. Uh, But it's also okay to feel like it's not as good as being together in person because it's not. And these are difficult, straining, and stretching times. Uh, I think we're all in situations we would rather not be in. Uh, Trips for work and for fun that are canceled. We're stuck in smaller spaces than than we'd like, I think. Maybe we might be with people that we uh, like, but maybe we aren't used to spending this much time with them. Uh, We're separated from family and friends, whether by distance or by social distance. And although we may have phone and FaceTime, and we're grateful for technology, uh, it only reminds us of what we're not able to have right now, which is being together in person. Some continue to have to go into work, as medical staff, nurses, and doctors, for whom we owe a tremendous debt of gratitude, but also physical therapists and vets and vet techs who are risking their own health to care for the health of our sick and our ailing, uh, bearing the anxiety of not knowing if they'll catch something and and, and perhaps accidentally share it with, with their loved ones. There are those in our church who are grocery store workers, restaurant workers, gig workers, delivery drivers, ride share drivers, folks who are putting themselves at risk because they have no other option. We have teachers scrambling to shift everything online so that their students can continue to learn. We have parents with kids in the house who have all become homeschoolers or daycare workers, but trying to do it on top of maintaining a work schedule as well. Some are experiencing a particular anxiety or fear or even grief uh, about having to make hard decisions for uh, your small business or your organization or your family, uh, or or fear about being laid off, uh, not knowing how to make ends meet or pay the bills, or uh, when we'll find another job. We have friends and family and loved ones who are pregnant, who are sick, who are grieving, uh, lost loved ones of their own without the ability to properly say goodbye. We feel the limitations of Zoom calls and the isolation of distancing and the anxiety and the uncertainty of our world today. Uh, Here in our our office, we had a little whiteboard on the fridge. And during our Ash Wednesday service about a thousand years ago, someone, I think it was my wife Carolyn, wrote on the board, you know, what did you give up for Lent? And last week I wrote, more than we expected, more than we expected. Uh, I've been feeling super stretched lately. Uh, Carolyn and I have had our 13-month-old Daniel at home with us full-time, and so Carolyn and I have uh, essentially split our workdays. So she works in the morning and I work in the afternoon. Uh, this week, as usual, has been full. It's been busy with everything from COVID-19 response, care, and check-ins with you all, uh, preparation for leadership meetings and elder meetings and these Sunday liturgies and other church gatherings Praying, trying to discern what it means for us to be the church in a time like this. And this week is Holy Week, which is usually the busiest time of year for us anyway. And so we're getting ready for Good Friday, we're getting ready for Easter Sunday. And by Thursday night, three days ago, man, I was feeling it. I was feeling it. The anxiety, the stress about the long list of things that I had to do and the the, the shorter number of hours, smaller number of hours that I had to do them in. The anxiety of trying to keep everything moving. The anxiety of trying to care for our church and our city and and my friends and my family. And every time I sat down to try to write this sermon, uh, it seemed like there were other things to do. Valid and important things to do, but but just more things to do. More things to take care of. Uh, There was also, as there tends to be whenever there's times of stress, the urge to run away, to distract myself, to veg out. That's the flight response. And then every time I was reading the news or... You know, checking out friends' uh, updates on Facebook or scrolling through Twitter, which is this strange backlash of sort of really bad news, and then someone's trying to post something really hopeful, and then there's terrible news, and then there's tragic news, and then someone's posting something really funny, and it's just this strange whiplash. And I found that all of it was just adding to the anxiety because I wasn't being productive. And then I feel bad about not being productive, and then, you know, well, you kind of get the idea. Um, maybe you know what I'm talking about or... You've been going through something similar or something harder still. We are all feeling the straining and the stretching and the disruption. And it's okay to name that. It's okay to acknowledge that. Earlier this week, a friend asked me this question, what does spiritual formation look like in this time? Because, you know, I'm the pastor of spiritual formation here, so that's part of my job responsibility. But in the midst of the week I just described, I was like, how am I going to preach a sermon on Palm Sunday when I don't even feel grounded? I'm finding it hard to be grounded. What kind of example am I setting? What kind of pastor am I? And um, two things happened. First, God reminded me about this book that I'm providentially reading right now, which is this. It's called Wholeheartedness, Busyness, Exhaustion, and Healing the Divided Self. It's by a pastor, therapist, and spiritual director named Chuck DeGroat. And it's been an absolute godsend for me so far, and and I'll have at least one nugget of wisdom to draw out later in the message. That was the first thing that God reminded me. A Second, uh, we just finished 12 weeks of learning to live, which is our discipleship and spiritual formation experience, where we dove deep individually and in community into what it means to follow Jesus. And not, not just what it means to follow Jesus, but to grow in the likeness of Jesus. Uh, so there were habits and practices that we utilized, things that we tried uh, in order to better align ourselves with what God wants to do uh, in us and ways that we needed to get out of the way of what, what, what God wanted to do. Um, we learned spiritual disciplines that Christians have practiced for hundreds of years. We prayed prayers that uh, other saints had written and prayed in situations far harder than our own. We leaned on and leaned into community, uh, sharing with vulnerability our stories and holding with care other people's stories. As all followers of Christ are called to, we, we're seeking to grow in maturity. We're seeking to grow in faith, in, in, in character, in purpose. We we're doing our part to partner with God's Spirit, to see God's kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. But, but, and I needed this reminder, this was the second reminder, we still need Jesus. We still need Jesus. We were not made to carry the weight of the world. We were not made to be apart from each other. We were made for relationship with one another and with God. And only God and Christ could make that happen. We were not made to endure hard things without feeling pain and compassion and empathy. And when there are a lot of hard things as there are now, to feel like our emotional tanks are, are kind of drained all the way dry. And so in all of our doing and all of the things that we're doing, let's not forget that Jesus already did, right? Let's not forget that Jesus already did. That's what we celebrate every week, but it's what we celebrate this week in particular, this coming Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday in seven days. Now, as I was reflecting on what to say, you know, what wise words I could come up with, what nuggets of wisdom I could share, what impressive turns of phrase, what I was reminded of this week is that those things don't matter. Those things don't matter. What matters is Jesus. I am not the main attraction here. Jesus is. And so, especially in the midst of a hard thing, especially in the midst of this hard season that we're in, we need to remember that we need Jesus. We so need Jesus, which is kind of the point of Lent. And so I want us today to take a look at Jesus. Jesus. Today is Palm Sunday, which is the day in the Christian calendar where we mark Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And what we celebrate and remember on Palm Sunday is that Jesus is King. Okay. What we celebrate and remember today on Palm Sunday is that Jesus is King. Turn to your neighbor or the empty space next to you and say, Jesus is King. Jesus is King. Now, what does it mean for us to remember that Jesus is king in times like this? I think it's helpful to look at what it meant for Jesus to be king when he walked this earth. You know, he was cheered on by crowds of disciples. He was acclaimed as the leader the Jewish people had been waiting for to free them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. The people longed for this Messiah, this Savior, this anointed one of God to kick out the oppressors, the occupiers, and restore the nation of God to greatness in the land they had been promised. So let's look at Luke Luke chapter 19, verses 37 and 38 read, As Jesus approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives down to Jerusalem, the whole throng of his disciples began rejoicing. They praised God with a loud voice because of all the mighty things, all the miracles they had seen. They said, Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. And in the Gospels, the thing that Jesus talked about more than anything else was the kingdom of God. The rule and reign of God in every life and every sphere of life. The in-breaking power of God into every situation and circumstance. The new and true and life-giving reality that is birthed when what God wants to happen actually happens. When God's will is done. Jesus is the king of that kingdom. The thing about Jesus is that he was the long-awaited Messiah. He was God's anointed one. He was the one who would restore God's people and bring shalom and end all oppression. But he didn't do any of it in the way that people expected. He came on a donkey instead of in a chariot. He came with a ragtag band of disciples instead of a well-trained military force. He came with love and peace instead of vengeance and retribution. But one I want to highlight from these two verses at the beginning of our passage today is that Jesus was God's king. Jesus was God's king. Paradoxically, in refusing to enter Jerusalem in the style of a military leader, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy from Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Sing aloud, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king will come to you, he is righteous and victorious. He is humble and riding on an ass, a cult, the offspring of a donkey. Jesus was God's king. He did come in the name of the Lord. Now to come in the name of somebody is to be their ambassador, to be their representative, their appointed representative, to bring their words, to bring their message, to be about their mission. And King Jesus was the truest representative of God the world has ever known, the fullest embodiment of the divine in a human being. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians. All of the fullness of God was pleased to live in Jesus. And what that means is when we see Jesus, we see God. What we see Jesus do, we know God does and did. What we hear Jesus say, we know God would say. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus, the King of God's kingdom. And so it's an important practice for me to regularly keep coming back to the stories of Jesus in the Gospels to be reminded of what He's like. Sure, so I can know who I'm supposed to be like, you know, who I'm learning to live like and with and in, but more importantly, so I can be reminded of what God is like. And it's that, it's particularly needed in times of turmoil and uncertainty and chaos, in times of anxiety and stress and fear. I needed to be reminded of the one who has the whole world in his hands. I needed to be reminded of the the one who is working in all things to bring about good. I needed to be reminded of the one who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. I needed to be reminded who's on the throne and what that one is like. So what does Jesus, God's king, tell, tell us, reveal to us about God in this passage? Verses 39 and 40 say some of the Pharisees from the crowd that were among his disciples, they said to Jesus, they said, Teacher, scold your disciples. Tell them to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would shout. The stones would shout. Now, one of the things I get from that response is that um, Jesus had some sass. Jesus had uh, attitude. Jesus was not above some well-placed humor, but he was speaking a deeper truth as well. And that truth is, our God is the Lord of all creation. Our God is the Lord of all creation, of stars and of microbes, of quarks and of quasars. Jesus tells the Pharisees that even the rocks would cry out in praise. Those implacable, inanimate, stony-faced stones would shout for joy. Just as the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, just as the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Our God is the Lord of all creation, of the observable universe and beyond, of all eternity and beyond infinity. And that God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That God chose to limit Himself in the form of a human being because that God loves us. That God loves each one of us. That God loves you. That God is with you. Wherever you are, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going through, that God loves you and is with you. And there's a quote from Pastor Walt Henriksen, whose book Disciples Are Made, Not Born, sat on my parents' bookshelf when I was growing up. Uh, Walt Henriksen says this All of our problems are related to the size of our concept of God. Big God, small problems. Small God, big problems. Well, we have a great big God, and that God loves us with a great big love. And that doesn't mean we don't have problems, and doesn't mean we won't feel uncertainty or stress or anxiety or fear or frustration or worry, but I needed to remember this week, and maybe you do too, that we have a great big God who, from whose great big love nothing in heaven or on earth will separate us. In preparation for today, I read through the traditional Palm Sunday story, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, but then I kept reading, and there were two more things I think we learned that might help us reflect on what it means for us that Jesus is king. Uh, Verses 41 and 42 of chapter 19 in Luke. As Jesus came to the city and observed it, he wept over it. He said, If only you knew on this of all days the things that lead to peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus wept over the city because he knew where it was going. He knew that in its lust for power and political position, eventually it would end in the destruction of the city. And so he wept for the city. He wept for the people in that city. He wept for the people who would suffer. Our king, God's king, is a compassionate king. Throughout the Gospels, we read about how Jesus is filled with compassion, now, the word compassion comes from a Latin phrase meaning to suffer with, to suffer with, to relate to, to come alongside, to empathize with, to hurt with us. The very act of the incarnation of God becoming a human being was an act of love and compassion, of choosing to suffer with us. Jesus, our King, is a compassionate King, and that means that, means that our God is a compassionate God. This week, over 6 million people filed for unemployment. And one estimate places the unemployment rate at its highest since the Great Depression. Already. Which is an awful and anxious and stressful situation in and of itself. But it's even worse, it's made even harder in a country where our health coverage is tied to our employment because that means that not only are more people trying to find jobs to pay for the bills and support their families, even as more and more jobs are getting cut because companies and businesses and organizations can't do business as usual, but also these same people are without the health coverage that would help them better deal with the health crisis that we're currently in. And so I'd ask for us to pray for each and every one of those folks Because what I learned from who Jesus is, is that our compassionate God cares and is with us in all of this. God feels the pain you're carrying. God understands the stress you're bearing. God knows how the anxiety and depression are threatening to overwhelm you. And in the midst of this storm, just like the closest of friends in our times of need, God is with us. God is with us. To help if help is needed, to fix if a fixing is needed, to provide the comfort and assurance of His presence, though, more than any of that. In His presence there is healing. In His presence there is goodness. In His presence there is joy. Joy forevermore. Know that. Know that. Remember that. Lean into that. Let God be the rock on which you fall when you do not think you have the strength to stand. There's another thing we learn about Jesus as king that we cannot, must not neglect. After Jesus entered the city, he went to a very significant place, the temple. Now, it was just before Passover, which is the biggest uh, celebration and festival in the Jewish calendar. And so there would have been hundreds of thousands of pilgrims in Jerusalem, not just from Palestine, but from all over the world. Passover is when Jews all returned to Jerusalem to mark the Lord's rescue of them from slavery in Egypt. And so the city would have been full of folks, and the temple, the temple would have been the center of attention. You see, the temple was not just a religious monument, but also a national monument. It was considered God's dwelling place, the site where heaven met earth, the gleaming symbol of God's blessing and presence. It was the house of God where sacrifices were offered, where the priests interceded with God on behalf of the people. And just before Passover, it would have been filled to the brim. And this is what happens, Luke 19, verses 45 and 46. When Jesus entered the temple, he threw out those who were selling things there. He said to them, it's written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a hideout for crooks. Now, a surface reading to these verses is that money and God don't mix, but there's more to it than that. Here's a bit of context so we can understand what was happening. In the temple, there were two kinds of of, uh, commercial business going on, money changers and animal sellers. So money changers operated by converting all of the currencies that people would use from all over the world into a particular local currency that was needed to pay the temple tax. But the money changers would charge a fee for the transaction, one that ensured that while they were fulfilling a necessary function, they became quite comfortable doing it. Animal change. Animal sellers were there because animal sacrifices were the offering required offering of the day. So there were doves and goats and sheep and lambs and and bulls, um, depending on your level of wealth. Now people could certainly bring their own animals from home. But each animal had to be spotless and without blemish in order to be appropriate and approved for sacrifice. The temple had its own animal inspectors. And so if you think about it, the further you had to travel from home with that animal, the more chance there is of something going wrong. And so for most pilgrims, the easiest option was to buy their sacrifices at the temple. Again, however, these animal sellers marked up their prices exorbitantly simply because they could. Because... They were offering a necessary service. One commentator has noted that a pair of doves could cost up to 15 times more inside the temple walls than outside the temple walls. And a pair of doves, the law of Moses tells us, the pair of doves is the the offering of the poorest of the poor. And so even though God sought to make allowances for the most vulnerable, they were still being taken advantage of, and worse, by the temple system and by the high priest who owned those booths. And it's this corruption, it's this injustice, it's this inequity, this exploitation that Jesus was seeking to disrupt by driving out the sellers out of the temple courts. Because Jesus, our king, God's king, is a righteous and just king, which means that our God is a righteous and just God. In Scripture, those concepts of righteousness and justice are often intertwined because righteousness is not about personal piety. It's not about a particular standard of individual moralism. It is about right relationships and about wholeness within community and and, and society. And relationships involve other people. Justice involves other people. It involves defending the image of godness in everyone and challenging the practices and processes and systems and structures that deny or denigrate that divine image. In the words of Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, where human dignity is least obvious, it's most important to make a fuss about it. Where human dignity is least obvious, it's most important to make a fuss about it. This time of COVID-19 has been quite uh, apocalyptic, and one sense of that word refers to the end of the world, but the Greek word apocalypsis means an unveiling, a revelation. Things are being revealed, not least of which is the truth that all of humanity is intertwined and interconnected. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. We are tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. But you know what sentence comes before that quote? Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. The injustices and inequities in our world, they're also being revealed. The individual selfishness as well as structural and systemic sin Is being revealed. Billionaires who make millions of dollars per hour somehow have hourly wage employees with no paid sick leave. Elected officials are using privileged information to benefit themselves while lying to their constituents that there's nothing wrong, nothing to worry about. Those whom our system considered worthy of only a minimum wage or only a low wage grocery store workers, truck drivers, gig workers, delivery drivers, farm workers, cleaners it turns out that they actually are essential. And maybe we've been exploiting them for their labor. Those who take care of our bodies, like doctors and nurses and medical assistants, those who take care of our kids. Like daycare workers and nannies and teachers, those who come to our aid, like first responders, police officers, firefighters, medical responders, social workers, and so many more, and so many more. In some ways, I think we see more clearly than ever before who is essential. And yet the wealthy and the connected are getting tested even if they're asymptomatic, while the poor and vulnerable can't get a test even if they're showing symptoms. And as more and more data comes out around the racial breakdowns on testing and treatment, well, you will not be surprised to know that racism and white supremacy are making rounds there, too. Xenophobia and anti-Asian, not even just anti-Chinese prejudice, anti-Asian prejudice, because that's how dumb prejudice and racism are. Anti-Asian prejudice and xenophobia are on the rise. Enabled by language from the highest office in the land, I know folks who have been shunned in grocery stores and spat at and told to go back to China even if they're not from China. I have friends whose kids before the schools were shut down were bullied in school because they were Asian. This week I joined with thousands of others in signing a statement crafted by Asian American Christians standing against racism and prejudice in the time of COVID-19. Why do we need a statement? Because racism is so baked into our history, into our systems and structures, that in moments of stress, it just leaks out. It just pours out. Because, friends, in times of crisis, who we are is revealed. In times of crisis, who we are is revealed. Now, let me be clear. I am also so grateful to be seeing the work of the Spirit and the character of Christ revealed in people as they care for one another and they come together to serve in sacrificial ways to to give to each other and to come around each other, whether that's nurses and doctors going and working in hazardous and risky conditions or whether that's folks at home making uh, makeshift cloth masks for people or delivering food or picking up meds and all of that. I believe those are signs of the kingdom coming. And I'm so grateful to see those, so inspired to see those happening in our church community and around the country and even around the world we also have to name the values that have been baked into our society for years and and over generations. The sin and selfishness that we all participate in, which encourages us to prioritize our comfort and safety over, just to give a few examples, the lives and livelihoods of those in refugee camps, those who are incarcerated, those who are living in slums or on the streets. All of that is being revealed as well. Lord, have mercy on on those folks who can't socially distance. Now, if you think this is too political, let me offer a couple of responses. First, this is real life. These are not disembodied hypotheticals. These are the very real situations of folks, even in our church, certainly in our community, and folks throughout the country and around the world. These are fellow human beings going through this. And and if the gospel that's being proclaimed to you doesn't have anything to say about reality, about real life, then I'm not sure that it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I'm not sure that it's the good news that Jesus embodied. And second, what Jesus was doing here in Luke 19, in the temple courts, was a very intentional political act of resistance. He was challenging the economic and religious and national power structures of the day. He was challenging the exploitative, self-serving, and sinful actions of those who claimed to represent God because the God they were revealing by their actions was neither compassionate nor righteous nor just. And so I think the question that is posed to us when we become aware of these things is, well, what do we do? If Jesus is a righteous and just king, what does the gospel of that Jesus have to say to these injustices? To these inequities, What kind of God will we reveal by our words and our deeds? You know, I've been feeling all the feelings uh, these last few weeks, and maybe you have as well. Um, I know there's a temptation to just keep busy or to numb out because we're afraid that if we slow down or if we stop, those feelings will overwhelm us or paralyze us or leave us in a heap on the kitchen floor or in the bathroom floor because that's where we need to get away from our kids. And I'm all for you, caring for yourself in ways that are helpful and healthy. But if Jesus can go from jubilant celebration to weeping and grief to anger in the course of nine verses, then I think we're okay to bring all of who we are into the presence of that same King. Now, earlier I mentioned this book, uh, Wholeheartedness, and in that book, Chuck Chuck DeGroat writes that increasingly, psychologists are discovering that one of the keys to wholeheartedness, to a healthy, integrated life, is self-compassion. All right, self-compassion, which allows us to be imperfect. It's acknowledging that we're imperfect. It allows us to be okay with not being okay. Now, if you're skeptical of self-compassion or if you're pointing out, well, the Bible never talks about self-compassion, well, let me frame it this way. Self-compassion is to give ourselves the same grace that God gives us. All right? Self-compassion is to give ourselves, to show ourselves, the same grace that God shows us. God simultaneously has higher hopes for us and for our lives than anything we could ever have, and God has more grace for us than we could ever have. And living in the, the, the integration of that is what brings joy and fullness of life, In the midst of all of the hard things. Jesus is king. Jesus is a compassionate, righteous, and just king. That's who's on the throne. That's who's by your side. And that's who by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit is within you. And so how do we respond to this King Jesus who comes to us in the midst of the world we're in right now? Well, one question for us to ponder this Holy Week is, as my friend asked me last week, well, what does spiritual formation look like in this time? Who are you becoming in this season? Or to put it another way, what are the things that you are doing, well, what are they doing to you? How are they forming you? Are they making you more compassionate, more righteous, more just? What image of God are you reflecting out to a world in need? And maybe this too, In your actions and in your words, are you showing, are you demonstrating, are you illustrating that Jesus is King? Or someone or something else? I'm just going to offer one practice. It's something that Carolyn and I have just started doing and and it may serve us well to transition from the focused intensity of uh, learning to live to something a little more sustainable for ordinary time. This practice is simply two-minute prayer prayer. And I want to give credit to Fuller Seminary's formation team for this formulation of it. The idea is that every day for 21 consecutive days, so this should take us through to the end of April, every day we practice a quick prayer with a trusted friend or a significant other or a family member or someone in your small group, maybe you're learning to live prayer partner, and we spend up to a minute each day praying for the other person for whatever they ask. Uh, whether that's something coming up on their calendar or a concern uh, for themselves or for a loved one or for something in the world that's, that's, that's weighing them down. And then when we've both prayed for each other, then we close in the Lord's Prayer together. And just like with learning to live, it, it, it can be helpful to find a set time to do it, to find some consistent consistency. Uh, by doing this, this, this two-minute prayer every day, We establish for ourselves a rhythm within relationship, within community, of remembering that Jesus is King. Of showing with our actions that we believe Jesus is King. Of centering on the God of compassion and righteousness and justice. And bringing our requests, as big as they may seem to us, to the great big God who loves us with a great big love. And in that way, we practice bringing all of who we are to the God of all there is. And allowing ourselves to be held, to be loved, to be empowered and formed by the Spirit in the likeness of King Jesus, in His compassion, in His righteousness, in His justice. You know, it was those same characteristics, those same qualities that led Jesus to the cross, that led our King not just to suffer with us, but to suffer for us, to die for us so that we might live, to rescue us and redeem us. This coming week, we'll reflect on that as well, but may we ever and always know and believe and live in and live out the truth that Jesus is King. May we as Christians, little Christs, be those who come in the name of our King, Jesus, being about His work, being about His mission, speaking His word, speaking His message, representing Him to others, receiving and then sharing His compassion and His righteousness and His justice and His life and light and love. May it be so for the sake of a world in need and a people in need and for the cause of the coming kingdom. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.